invite you now, if you have them, to turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 18. We're going to skip ahead a little bit. Fast forward this morning, and the words to which I would call your attention are found in verses 15 through 20. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. This morning, as we read God's word together, uh, remember that we do this as an act of worship. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, If two of you agree on earth about anything, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Uh, Please pray with me. Our Lord in heaven, we come to you this morning again acknowledging that every word you have breathed out and given to the men you've selected to be written down is profitable for your people. And we ask that you would help us to to take these words in this morning, to to feast upon them, to find in them nourishment and the comfort and compassion of our precious Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. We we got home from vacation a couple of weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, I guess now, and we found that there was a squatter in our home. Now, it's not the ordinary kind of squatter that you're looking for, which might normally be welcome. This was the one that has the little ears and the little tail uh, in the back, and he likes to eat uh, from your garbage and find little things that you've left around for him. So my immediate response was to go to the store and uh, get for him just a little care package, uh, something to leave out for him to let him know how welcome he is. It comes in a little green cube, You might have seen it, and they eat it, and they go to sleep for a long, long time. And uh, you would think, Walt Disney has led us to believe that mice are particularly loving animals. Although my son might not not agree. He's been bitten by one recently. Um, So we're watching him closely. But uh, you would think that if mice are as loving as we've been led to believe, he would have some buddies who would say to him, listen... When you go in the house, just know that that green thing in the cabinet, they have not left snacks out for you, okay? They're not welcoming you in. Don't eat it. It's poison and you will die. That would be the loving thing to do. Apparently they don't do that. In this way, though, I think you and I, if we think about it, we can be a little bit more like animals than image bearers. We can see a brother consuming poison and yet fail to warn him. 
we come up with really elaborate excuses. It's none of my business what he does. He's going to get mad at me if I tell him he's in sin or he ought not to believe this thing or that thing. Am I not being judgmental? Isn't it the height of Western Christianity that we've robbed everybody of judgment? But what we see this morning as we look at the actual words of Jesus, he teaches us that a healthy church is one where individuals address sin in one another's lives. God expects his children, I want you to think of it this way, God expects his children to help one another pursue holiness. That's his expectation. What we find is that God disciplines those whom he loves, and he often does so through the ministry of the church. As we get into this, I think before we get to the actual passage, I think there are a few principles that we should begin with. What I'm just calling point number one, okay? Preliminary principles of discipline. Or just, where ought we to start? What's the starting point? As we think about discipline, well, I think it's here. Uh, Turn over with me if you've got your Bible, and, and let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. We were just in Hebrews last week. We're going to go back there just briefly. And I want to read to you a passage beginning, uh, this is Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 5. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? So as we think about discipline in the church or in an even broader sense, the discipleship that takes place in the church... We begin by meditating upon who God is. And if we we started from a long, long distance, I would say, remember that, that God is not a distant God. He's a personal God. He condescends. He delights to come down and to relate to you as an individual. We see this in places like Genesis 12, where he descended to call Abram to himself. But part of the way that we identify as sons is through the discipline of the Lord. The writer to the Hebrews was very clear. If he loves you, he disciplines you. Discipline then is a positive. It isn't a negative thing. And the writer to the Hebrews presents it this way. If you want to be assured that you belong to to God through Christ, look for His discipline in your life. Now that's going to look various ways, but a couple of simple ways. One, that when you sit under the preaching of the Word, you sense the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And when you go out and live amongst the world, what do you sense? That the Spirit is limiting you as to your behavior. He's disciplining you to live in a way that honors Christ. 
But there can also be tangible aspects of discipline. He takes away the love for sin. May he do so more and more. Occasionally he will bring difficult providences into our life. You think of 1 Corinthians 11. If you take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, what happens? Some of you are sick. Some have died. We have to be careful here because we shouldn't say that every sickness means that there's some specific sin in your life. But certainly every sickness and every ailment ought to bring upon me a season of self-reflection. That's number one. God disciplines. Preliminary principle number two. Christ desires a pure church. To put it another way, Christ is purifying his church. Now we are known for saying, and this is a right saying, come just as you are. Don't worry about how you're dressed. Don't worry about what sins you're dealing with in your life. Come. Come to Christ. And we're just reiterating his invitation, aren't we? Come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Uh, Don't clean yourself up before you come to Christ. You can't do that. Come just as you are, but leave changed. You ought to leave changed. This is what the Great Commission is teaching us. Baptize them. Make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And, And what? Teaching them to obey. This, when we start thinking about this principle that Christ is purifying His church, this arrests, it puts to a stop the whole church growth movement which just says numbers, numbers, numbers. And teaches us that instead of asking how big is the church, we ought to ask how faithful is the church. Third, Jesus is teaching us to think of the church as a community, not a hobby. We need to move from I'm going to church to I'm a part of the church. Everywhere you read in Scripture about the body of Christ, the people of God, it is a living and breathing organism. The church is the kingdom of Christ where believers have community with one another. And this is one of the reason that we, reasons we put together things like a, a Wednesday night fellowship or a game night is so that the body of Christ can come together and fellowship with one another and have life together. Men's studies, women's studies, these are all because the body of Christ is an essential element for the Christian. The apex of that being worship, and you can't build community in one hour per week. So those are the three preliminary principles as we think about discipline. God disciplines whom he loves, so if you belong to him, you will know that because he's disciplining you. He is teaching you how to live for his glory too. Christ is purifying his church by his spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit to lead you into the truth. And then thirdly, remembering that the church is a community, not a hobby. 
Let's move now to the text, going back now to Matthew 18, 15 to 20. Understanding these principles, we ought to see then that discipline is an act of God through the church. Going back to that very beginning thought, God is disciplining his children. How is he going about doing that? One of the things that we talk about as a session is that you could boil down the whole work of the session in one word. What is it? Discipline. The whole work of the, of the session, the whole work of the elders and the officers of the church is discipline in two ways. One, by proclaiming the word of God and offering you multiple opportunities to sit under the word so that the spirit will work through it to discipline you to the glory of Christ. That's the general idea. But secondly, there is a specific discipline. And that is carrying out formal church censures. As we go to Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, understanding the whole 1 Corinthians 14, 40 idea, let everything be done in an orderly manner. That's, what we, that's, our, that's the Presbyterian life verse. Let everything be done decently and in order, okay? Don't raise your hands out here. Jesus has set down for his body a process of addressing sin. And I appreciate it as I was reading John Calvin on this. He said, Jesus has given us this process to keep us out of two ditches. One, some of you can be really harsh and nitpicky. And that's not good. So Jesus cuts that out. The other error that we can fall into is leniency. When I was in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, I really appreciated the form of government talking about church discipline because it said church discipline keeps mercy from becoming a soft and finally cruel indulgence. What does that mean? Well, the discipline of the church reminds church members uh, that there is a danger in sin. Sin, the indulgence in, in sin is dangerous. There is an actual, real danger. And discipline keeps that from happening. So let's just quickly get an overview. What's the process for addressing individual sin? It's four steps. Four steps. First, address your brother in private. Second, Take one or two others along. Third, tell the elders. Fourth, submit to the censures of the church. Those are the four steps. In verses 15 to 17, Jesus teaches us the first, uh, the first three steps, the process for addressing individual Sin. One, address your brother in private. Now, I want to bring out something here, just sort of technical, but when you read these verses, if your brother sins against you, go, tell him his fault. Those verbs are in the singular person. So he's not saying you all. He's saying you. 
In other words, what's happening, I am observing the Lord's providence in my life. That for, for reasons known only to him, he has made you aware of a particular sin issue. And therefore, I observe that it's the Lord's will for me to go and address that with my brother. But how am I to do that? Now, my thought might be, oh, I know some dirt. Man, I've got some interesting things to share at the water cooler tomorrow morning. All right, this is great. People are going to want to listen. But Jesus says, no, you, you need to go to your brother. If you know about it, you go to him. In... In German and Dutch, there's, a, uh, there's a, little, a little saying. It's called the meeting of the four eyes. Now, this is not talking about those who wear glasses. This is, means that you are sitting down with an individual and you, there are four eyes in that, at that table that, having a discussion, having a conversation. And I've been asked before, do you think, can I send an email? Can I send a text? Well, only if you can convince me that these Palestinians in the first century had some conception of an email and a text. The first command is go. Go to him. Literally, Jesus is teaching you, when you tell him his sin, this is the idea of convict. Of like prosecuting a case. Convict your brother of his sin. Show him his fault. Show him where he's going to, uh, along. John 16, 8 has the idea of pressing a charge. There's a sobriety about it. And then here's a ruling principle. How are you to do this? In private? Alone? You go to him, just the two of you alone, is what Jesus says. Because your objective in doing this is not to bring shame upon this brother. Your objective is not to accentuate his dishonor. Your objective is to win your brother. To gain your brother, as Jesus says. In 1 Corinthians 19, uh, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19 to 22, Paul will talk about, to the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might, what? Win them. This is the same idea. I am going to my brother, concerned for his soul, convicting him of his sins so that I can bring him back. Well, that's great. But what if he doesn't listen to me? What if he says to me, man, you know what? I've heard you and you can go pound sand. Well, Jesus says, don't give up. Don't give up. If you really believe that there's a danger in sin and that not repenting of sin brings the soul into a real danger, don't give up. Step two, take one or two others along. First, you go by yourself to him and you address faults, you address the sin. If he doesn't listen to you, you take two one or two others along. You remember at the beginning of Job, as you get into, you get into chapter 3 and 4, we get this scene. There's Job seated by the fire, covered in boils. His children are dead. Property's gone. His wife is as good as dead to him because she's an instrument in Satan's hands. 
He's got boils on his flesh, scraping himself, and there outside of town, where everybody dumps their garbage, sits Job, and he's got three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Why are those three men there? Well, they're prosecuting a case. And biblically speaking, you have to have two or three witnesses to prosecute a case. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 19, there's the principle that uh, if you need to get the elders involved, you have to have two or three witnesses. And I'll suggest to you, this is one of the fundamental failures that we have as a culture in the Me Too movement. Because somebody placed, uh, uh, put some sort of vague charge on Twitter, and all of a sudden that man is guil- uh, judged guilty. Well, this is not a biblical principle. If you come to the elders of your church expecting to establish a charge biblically and according to our Constitution, you must have more than one witness. And can I just suggest to you a process? If you find yourself in this position, and you've got a brother, you've confronted him, he says, you know what, not listening, and you need to bring two or three others along, or one or two others along with you. Don't poison the well. You know what that means? It means ask them to come along as unbiased listeners. Don't tell them everything that's going on. Give them some vague information. I think that our brother might be in sin. Would you help me to assess this? You come and listen to him and listen to me, and by the word of your testimony, you help to establish whether this is a legitimate charge or not. Don't poison the well. Well, imagine that we do that, and there we are, Bildad and Eliphaz and Zophar, and we've established the charge, and Job, you're not righteous, you've never been righteous. If, if, if uh, you were, none of this would have been happening to you. And, and our brother says, I have better things to do than listen to you all. I mean, y'all are sinners too, aren't you? Well, yeah, yeah, we are. We confess our sin. Step three is, Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. I want you to go back with me now just for a second so we can understand what this means to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Jesus here is not establishing a new process per se, but there is a a modification Deuteronomy 19, verses 16 to 17. Let's let's pick up in verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So that's what Jesus is drawing from. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord. How how does he appear before the Lord? Before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. So there's the principle established that this testimony is coming before whom? 
all of Israel? No, the local judges and priests. Turn over with me to chapter 22 of Deuteronomy, verses 13 to 15. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman, and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. So there you see again uh, this principle that's being established. Who tries these cases? It's the elders. And so when Jesus is telling you to Tell this to the church. What is he saying? Go to the officials of the church. Go to the officers of the church and now get them involved. So the picture is that I've known about this sin in my brother's life. He's a professing Christian. I've gone to him. I've addressed him. He won't listen to me. I've taken a couple of other people along who are also brothers and sisters in Christ. And he won't listen to us. We've tried to keep this thing as secret as possible for as long as possible. He won't listen, so I go to the elders of the church. And and what you should understand here is that Christ has invested the power of censure into the hands of the elders of the church. And we're going to come back to this in just a minute in a different way. But there's a... If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you might remember that, that scene where Pilgrim and Hope, I'm sorry, Pilgrim, Christian and Hopeful are walking along the way and they turn out of the path and they wind up in Doubting Castle. You remember that? And there's the giant despair in his wife and they beat them every day. Well, Christian finally discovers that he has the key in his pocket and he takes it out and he, he leaves the, the Doubting Castle, he leaves the prison. And they encounter some shepherds. And the shepherds say, where where have you come from and where are you going? And Christian and Hopeful say, we turned out of the way. And we found ourselves in Doubting Castle, overcome by depression and suicidal thoughts. And these shepherds who represent the elders in the church celebrated their celebrated their delivery but also met them with admonitions they said brothers don't turn out of the way again this is serious look over there do you see those dead bodies those are men who turned out of the way be aware and remember That all of those who turn out of the way, who apostatize, who turn away from Christ, finally will find themselves in damnation. Hell awaits those who turn away. So in the Presbyterian church, we acknowledge that there are three levels of censure that the elders can inflict. The first one is a private admonition. This is when a brother comes in and And he simply needs to be reminded, praise God for your repentance. Don't do that again. Reading some of the old session minutes from 
my ancestors who grew up in primitive Baptist churches, you'll find notes in there about Charles the drunk had to come before the session again to be admonished not to drink so heavily in the future. A private admonition. Well, what if he won't listen to a private admonition? Well, the, the second censure is suspension from the sacraments for a season. You may not take the Lord's Supper until we find that you are repentant. And then lastly, the harshest of the censures invested to the elders is excommunication. That is, putting out of the body of Christ, removing all assurance of salvation from that individual. Step four, notice with me, Jesus says, Let him be to you. If he refuses to listen even to the church, if we've done all of these things and this man will not repent, he will not relent, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And all I would call your attention to here is again, this is a singular singular pronoun. Let him be to you. He must be to you. You as an individual have to accept the censures of the church and abide by them. We acknowledge that within the church all things are done decently and in order. And this includes addressing sin in the life of a brother. And I want to tell you just a a story here. Um, The first Presbyterian church I went to that taught me all about the principles of discipline. I'd never heard about this before in my life. And I grew up in church. Uh, there was an individual who was seeking to divorce uh, her spouse. And there weren't biblical grounds for the divorce. In other words, it's just irreconcilable differences kind of thing. And the elders of the church came forward and addressed this sin. You can't, you can't divorce your spouse for these reasons. And she did what a lot of people do. She said, well, I'll just go to the Baptist church down the street. And so the elders wrote a letter to the Baptist church down the street. And said, you need to understand what's happening. This individual has conducted this sin. Will not acknowledge the sin. Will not repent. Will not acknowledge the authority of the elders as being rebellious in every definition of the term. And you should know this. And the response from the Baptist church was, well, we are a church of love. Are you? It seems to me that Proverbs is pretty clear that the father who loves his son disciplines his son. And the one who spares the rod hates his son. Actually, you have a false understanding of love. But there's another thing that you ought to understand as we close out this passage Jesus closes with two verily I say to you's in verses 18 and 19. Assuredly I say to you. In other words, in language, he is trying to emphasize these last two principles. And the first one is, as we think of God's assurance of his authority in the church, that the pronouncements of the church are certified by God. 
The pronouncements of the church, that is by the elders, are certified by God. Notice what Jesus says in verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is he speaking to them. When you apply these censures, you need to understand that what you determine is honored by God. Now, there's a little bit of a failure in the language. Because it shouldn't be translated, whatever you bind will be bound. It should be translated this way. Whatever you bind will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose will have been loosed in heaven. In other words, in, in a sense, there's, when the elders apply these censures, they are merely being congruent with the judgment of God, something that he has already done. If you observe an individual who will not repent of his sin then God has bound him. God is not granting him the kindness of repentance. God has handed him over to his sin. And God is demonstrating him to be a rebel. This is a repetition of the words that Jesus spoke to Peter in Matthew 16, 19, when he said, whatever you loose will have been loose, and whatever you bind will have been Bound. And so uh, the first thing we, we understand is that Christ gives the elders power to bind and to loose when they admit you to the sacrament by their judgment that you truly believe in Christ. They are opening the door, as it were, loosing to you the privileges of membership. And through suspension and excommunication, they are binding what they believe God has bound. Coming back to the Baptist church down the street who said we are a church of love. Well, what they are failing to understand is that God has given authority to the elders in this church that extends to the church universal. In other words, when these men sit in judgment on these cases and they make these pronouncements, it is Christ's intent that every church of Christ should honor them. You can't flee to the Baptist church down the street and escape. To do so merely adds to your sin. When this process is followed, then, and the standard of Scripture is used, the censures of the session are the censures of God. And let me make one last principle here. In verses 19 to 20, we find that the pronouncements of the church must have a plurality. This is why we believe Presbyterian church government is biblical. It's not acceptable for for Brian McCullough as a pastor to say, guess what, don't like you, you're excommunicated. Whether I'm a pastor or a pope, I cannot do that by myself. And that's why we have these last two verses, verses 19 and 20. Again, I say to you, If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So the first thing that we see is, now given all the context of this, we're not talking about prayer meetings and ladies' Bible studies. 
This verse refers to the fact that when the session sits in judgment and when the church of Jesus Christ acknowledges these judgments, he agrees. They have the power and the force of Jesus himself. God, if he loves you, assures you of his love by disciplining you because he's a perfect father. He's not lenient with sin. He wants your best. And because he does, he convicts you of sin. He causes his word to be vibrant and vivid in your life to lead you to holiness. And here Jesus is teaching us as a church the practice of true love. How do we practice true love? How do we have true fellowship in the body of Christ? Well, we learn that refusal to address sin in my brother's life is actually the opposite of sin. Opposite of love. When you correct a brother and you observe church discipline, it reveals this. That you can distinguish between mercy and leniency. That you believe Christ will condemn sinners. That you believe hell is real and real people will go there. That you are willing to sacrifice your ego for the sake of your brother's soul. Let's pray. Our Father... As we think about the gravity, the sobriety of these words, we ask a couple of things from you. One, help us to be faithful in self-discipline. Help us never to neglect the duty to compare ourselves to your word so that through it you might discipline us, teaching us how to live according to the principles and precepts of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Give us humility in that way as we examine ourselves more specifically and more thoroughly than any of our brethren. And secondly, would you give us the love and devotion to one another that compels us to seek each other's good by addressing sin? Give us boldness. Give us confidence. Give us the humility necessary to show this level of love. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.